The following sermon by Pastor Rick Holland is brought to you by Mission Road Bible Church. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com. Well, take your Bibles and turn to Romans chapter 4. This is the last sermon in Romans chapter 4, Lord willing. And then next week we'll come back and do a theological survey and summary of chapter 4 before we move on to that great section beginning in chapter 5 that works through chapter 8 on the believer's new life in Christ. The reason we're approaching this text the way we have, it's, it's important to just remind ourselves, and maybe if you're visiting with us, what we do is we just study through the Bible. I remember the first time I ever heard an expository series in the Bible. It was by my friend John MacArthur. Uh, I didn't know who he was. I listened to a tape series uh, through Ephesians 6. And I remember at the end of that series actually saying and articulating this thought. What a great idea, like during a sermon time, to actually explain Bible verses. What a great idea. Well, little did I know how, how sad my theology of Scripture was at that time. And God has certainly, uh, through studying his word, through knowing men who have done that and preached that, can given me the strong conviction that the best thing we can do is just take the next passage and explain it. Well, we're going through Romans chapter 4, and we've come to Romans chapter 4, verse 23. Romans chapter 4, verse 23. Follow along as I read through verse 25, the end of the chapter. Not only for his sake, that's Abraham's, was it written in Genesis 15, 6, by the way, that his faith was credited to him, but for our sake also, to whom it will be credited as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. He who was delivered over Because of our transgressions and was raised because of our justification. This whole chapter has been about faith, about belief, about trust, about what God grants to the believer for believing. It's amazing how much of life we live by faith. Just think of this very moment. You have faith that the chair in which you are sitting will support your weight. You're exercising faith that the floor on which the chair is resting will support all of our weight and keep us from falling into the basement. You believe that the arches above your head will bear the weight of the roof and not collapse onto us. I just want to see how many of you are looking up right now, a lot of you. You believe that the sun will continue to shine until 4.58 tonight when the Weather Channel, at least, says it's going to set. But it's personal with people as well. You believe that you are sitting safely next to the person you are right now, that there are no threat. You have faith that the people who made the coffee this morning did not put harmful ingredients into the mix. Now, I know some of you think that milk and sugar are harmful ingredients, but that's not what we're talking about. If you rode with someone else to church this morning who drove you, you trusted that they would stay in their own lane and deliver you safely to church. Not only that, you actually trusted on two lane streets that the person who you don't know would stay in their lane and not cause you to hit them head on. Life is full of 
decisions we make that are acts of believing something beyond our control, believing, trusting by faith. I fly a fair amount in my life, and I, uh, I'm always amazed how much faith takes to fly an airplane. I was talking to a Boeing engineer one time who uh, was saying that he has to suspend all he knows about all the inner workings of that plane when he gets on a flight. Just trust that it all works together. But did you see the news this week? Here's the headline. Boeing cargo jet takes off after a mistaken landing in Kansas. I want to read you this article. It's pretty short. A Boeing cargo jet that was stranded overnight at a Kansas airport, too small to handle the giant aircraft, took off safely Thursday and landed a short time later at what has been uh, intended, what was his intended destination, officials said. The dream lifter bound for McConnell Air Force Base in Wichita, Kansas, had inadvertently landed instead at nearby Colonel James uh, Jabara Airport run by the city, according to a statement by Boeing co-spokesman Doug Adler. The bizarre spectacle made national headlines and drew gawkers to the smaller airport on Thursday, prompting traffic jams, even car crashes, and road closures around the area. The plane took off about 1.15 Central Standard Time and landed at McConnell 20 minutes later. Airport officials and speculators applauded and sighed with relief when the massive plane's wheels left the airfield about 16 hours after this erroneous landing. City officials said the 235-foot, 72-meter Atlas Air 747 Dreamlifter landed at Jabara late Wednesday by mistake, but did not say what led to the error. I want to know what led to the error. <laughs> the two pilots had taken off from New York's JFK International Airport, officials said. Whoa, Wichita officials said in a statement posted early Thursday morning on the city's official Facebook page. The plane is too large for the runway and will need deep help departing. Boeing contracts with Atlas Air to fly the plane and was looking into how the incident happened, Adler said. The airport is equipped to handle small business planes, but nothing as heavy as the Dreamlifter, which can carry about 800,000 pounds on takeoff. No cargo had been removed from the plane for takeoff, Adler said. The airport and plane escaped without damage. I think it's hysterical. I could not stop laughing, said uh, an official, 33, a commercial airline pilot who was in town for training and stopped by the airfield to watch the takeoff. I've heard of this before, but it's fairly rare. Another pilot expressed sympathy for the crew and said he thought of the whole situation was kind of sad. I'm sorry for the pilots that landed by mistake because their careers are now in jeopardy. Took off. No one's quite sure how it braked and landed when it did. That runway is 3,000 feet shorter than the runway it should have landed on and taken off. You know, I read that in preparation for thinking about this week's sermon. Heard about it on the news and then uh, read about it. And it's remarkable that that doesn't happen more often. I mean, when you get on a plane, you really believe that that guy is going to get where he tells you, or your ticket at least tells you, you're supposed to go. When I was living in Los Angeles a few years ago, there was uh, a man from New Zealand who uh, went to uh, Air New Zealand's air... um, uh, uh, office and desk uh, and needed to get a plane to Oakland, California. 
The lady working at the Air New Zealand desk, though, was from Los Angeles. And when he said Auckland, she thought he meant, because he was from New Zealand, Auckland. And about six hours into his flight to Auckland, he realized that this flight to Oakland should have only taken about 45 minutes. Life is full of faith choices. It's remarkable how much faith we put in things that matter somewhat, but without eternity. This whole chapter in Romans 4 is about faith. What our faith is in, what our faith does, what faith accomplishes, what trust can mean for us now in this life and in eternity. If you listen to all those illustrations carefully, though, there were some words that I intentionally mixed up. There are three words which dominate this book, and especially the last two chapters. Believe, faith, and trust. All three of those concepts work together to believe in something, specifically here, what God has done. To have faith that God did it, and faith in God and God alone, and to trust that what God has said and what he said he did is actually true. All three of these come into play as synonyms in the gospel. Now, as we look to the final little section here in Romans chapter 4, this is the conclusion. This is the so what. And we have been traveling through some very deep water in Romans chapter 4. We've talked about circumcision. We've talked about uh, David's adulterous situation. We've talked about what it means that a man will have a baby with a woman who was 90 and he was 100. We have talked about a lot of things, and eventually Paul knew that we would ultimately say, well, so so what? What about us? This section actually turns to us. As we look at this, we're going to look at the centrality of Christ's resurrection to the gospel, and we'll discover together two considerations For grasping the doctrine of imputation. Now, before we get into this, let's go back and do some review. We've been looking at a doctrine called sola fide, faith alone in Latin. And over and over in chapters 3 and 4, Paul has been explaining that we are saved by believing and believing alone. Nothing we add to it, no ritual religiously we can accomplish uh, to add to our faith. It's only believing what God has done and that God has done all that we need to be saved, to go to heaven. And what we need to go to heaven is, drum roll, perfection. It's kind of an odd thing, but... We could ask the question, what do you have to do to go to heaven? And the right answer is be perfect. Now, I've looked at my own resume. I know a lot of the resumes that belong to you. And none of us qualify. Except for one man. Jesus Christ lived a perfect life. In every category, he obeyed the law. He was intrinsically, because he was God in flesh, perfect. He was actively perfect in that he obeyed in every way he could the law of God. Chapter 4 has said that God will take his righteousness, his perfection, and this is the word imputation, the word for credit. He will, it's a mathematical uh, um, uh, financial term, he will credit our account with his righteousness. But in our account is sin, is Transgression is 
awful rebellion against God. Those two don't coexist in God's mind because as God has credited Jesus' righteousness to those who believe in the gospel truth, he has now taken our sin and in a miraculous, mysterious, inexplicable way, credited our sin to Christ's death on the cross so that he paid for our sin by dying and we get his righteousness by believing. That's the good news. That's the gospel. How do we grasp that? What's the so what? How, how can we practically apply that? Well, that's what this last section in Romans 4 is about. And so we'll find two considerations for grasping the doctrine of this crediting, this imputation. The first is found in verse 23. The historical precedence of sola fide. We have to look in the past. The first thing we have to understand to consider to get the real doctrine of imputation and why it matters is to look backwards. That's what chapters 3 and 4 have been about. Look at verse 23. Not only for his sake. Stop right there. Who is his? His is Abraham. He's been discussing Genesis chapter 15 and 17 and 18. How Abraham believed what God told him. What did God tell Abraham? That in your old age you will bear a son. And that son will be the father of many nations. Including the Jewish nation. Through whom I'm going to bring the Messiah. Abraham was too old to bear children. Sarah was too old to bear children. The previous text says he was considered as good as dead. Physically. And yet, God said, believe that in your old age you will bear a son. His name will be Isaac and he will be the father of many nations. Ultimately, the father, Abraham would be, of those who believe in Jesus, the Messiah who would come from the lineage of Abraham. So, verse 23 talks about Abraham. Not only for Abraham's sake was it written. Verse 23, by the way, looks back to verse 22. Verse 22 quotes Genesis 15, 6. It was imputed or credited to Abraham as righteousness when he believed God. And as we've said over and over, if you really understand the gospel truth, you will constantly say to yourself, I can't believe it's so simple. That I don't contribute, that I don't try to be good enough, try hard enough to be better than so-and-so. God did it all on the cross for those who believe. There's a subtle hint here, by the way, about our bibliology. Look at what it says. <clears throat> it was written... Was it written? doesn't say that it happened. It says it was written, which tells us that Paul believed in the absolute authority of his Bible, the Old Testament. Now, we don't have the time to go through the whole chapter again, but let me just flood you with some numbers for a moment. Righteousness is talked about over and over in the book of Romans, especially in chapter 4. It's associated with the same word as imputation, to credit, to make us not guilty, to declare, to declare us as perfect and righteous. It doesn't make us perfect, it declares us perfect. Big difference. He talks about this crediting, this reckoning, uh, 11 times. And without going in chapter 3 
going through all those verses. In chapter three, excuse me, in verse three, he talks about it. Verse four, verse five, verse six, verse eight, verse nine, verse 10, verse 11, verse 22, verse 23, and verse 24 all talk about God crediting or imputing righteousness to a person who would believe in what he's done. One of the rules of hermeneutics is when you find a word or concept repeated over and over, there's a pretty good indication going on that that is an important concept. Righteousness is what we need most. Righteousness is what the gospel gives us. But it does so, as we'll see in a moment, by taking our sin away and dealing with it in the death of one as our substitute. So really, verse 23 is just a review. It was not only for his sake, Abraham's, that it was written that his faith, what he believed in Genesis 15, 6, was credited to him, imputed to him as righteousness. That's exactly what verse 22 tells us. But now we go on to this second, and this is where it gets most interesting, consideration for grasping the doctrine of imputation before we move on to chapter 5, and that is the present application of sola fide, believing alone. That's the big word for that, the Latin phrase. The historical precedence was given to us in Abraham. The practical application now is spelled out at the end, uh, spelled out at the end of chapter 4. The first thing we discover is that the credit for our faith is imputation. The credit given for our faith is this doctrine of imputation. Verse 24, not only for his sake, but I love this, but for our sake also. Now we get to us. Thank you, Paul. To whom, us, to us, it will be credited. This is the practical application that, here's the analogy, Abraham believed and God gave him righteousness for believing what God had done. In the same way, we believe God and he credits us with righteousness, perfection, right standing, a declaration of not guilty as well. Can I flood you with some more numbers? In chapter four, nine times credit, imputation, justification, sola fide, is discussed in terms of believing of faith. Verse 3, verse 5, verse 9, verse 13, verse 14, verse 16, verse 22, verse 22, and 20, verse 22, and verse 24. All talk about believing, having faith, trusting, is what accesses this crediting, this imputation. Now, if you're like most of us, you read all this and you say, wow, that's a lot of a lot of words, it's a lot of data, that's kind of complicated. Don't, don't be mistaken, it's really simple, it's not complicated, it's just unbelievable. We've said it over and over and over in the study of this chapter, and Paul has said it over and over and over. Remember, all of chapter 4 is just an illustration of chapter 3, which tells us that we're saved by faith alone. He uses Abraham, he uses David in chapter 4 to say, see, they were too. This is nothing new. God didn't invent salvation by grace, through faith, alone in the New Testament. This is how people have always been saved. And the point of that is no one has ever been saved by doing enough good, trying hard enough, and being righteous enough. 
No one ever, ever, ever. God declares, he makes a declaration that a sinner is now righteous because of another. The credit for our faith is that he imputes. There's that word again, the word imputation in verse 24. He, he credits that because of what we believe. But it goes on. The object of our faith is Christ's resurrection. Now for this, you have to step back and look at what Paul is doing in illustration and what Paul is doing in drawing the analogy. He's been saying through Abraham and through David, basically he said through Abraham over and over and over all the way through chapter four, God said, I am going to give you a son in your old age. Will you believe that? And Abraham struggled to believe that, didn't he? Such that he uh, actually, uh, Sarah concocted a scheme where uh, he would go into Hagar and have uh, a son, his name was Ishmael, but God said, that's not what I meant. What I meant was that I'm going to do something beyond your control, supernatural and miraculous, and you must believe that. That's a picture and an analogy of what the gospel is in this way. God says, I am going to call you as a believer to believe that I have done something supernatural, extraordinary, beyond your reason and certainly beyond your experience to believe. Look at the object then in verse 24 at the end. As those, this is us, who believe in him, that's God, who did something incredible. And look at the stack of descriptions here. Who raised Jesus, that's the man from Nazareth, our courier, our Lord, that's the, the, the one who stands over all, from the dead. Now, we, we know of Easter. We do Easter every year. We sing songs. I think that, I think it's really easy for us to be so familiar with the concept of Christ's resurrection from the dead that we forget the traumatic reality of that in general and specifically when it happened. Verse 17 is clear as to what, rather who, that object is. Trust always has an object. Faith always is built on trust. They have an object. Abraham believed God in verse 17 specifically. Isn't it interesting that God would raise the dead? Now, we'll come back to this, but Hebrews 11 tells us that when Abraham was called to sacrifice Isaac, that he did so believing he would kill his son and God would raise him from the dead. Even Abraham believed in the resurrection. But here we find the same object for our faith, and that is that God raised Jesus from the dead. There are a lot of doctors in our conversation, in our congregation. Uh, physicians, dentists, we have PhDs. There's a lot of medical knowledge residing in this room right now. And were we to take the moment 
We won't. And bring all of those medical experts up to the stage and ask them in all of their experience, have they ever seen anyone raised from the dead? Now, that's different than someone loses a heartbeat, you give them the paddle, they come back. Scripture is so clear. Christ was crucified, buried, three days later with no pulse, he rises from the dead. Do, do you understand, do you appreciate how ridiculous that sounds? It did in Paul's day, and it should to us as well. I mean, imagine how odd it would be if you said, and I'm not trying to be irreverent in, in any sense when I say this, if you said, look, my uncle who died last month, he, he rose from the dead. He's, he's back. We had his funeral, we buried him, but he, he's back alive again. Wouldn't that be troubling? You have to understand that that was the first generation's response to Christ's resurrection. He was crucified with two other criminals. He himself being not a criminal, but tried as one. He was buried dead. He was tested to be dead. A sword was pierced into his side to prove that he was dead. He was anointed with oil as a burial procedure that he was dead. Had he been alive, multiple people would have known it. But he was dead and he was buried. And three days later, he was alive. Do you believe that? Now, when you say that, you understand that you have been now put into the category that 1 Corinthians 1 says is foolishness. What the world says to believe that is loft, way off, foolish. We're going to come back to that practically in a moment. What did it mean? What did it mean? Well, now we see the outcome of our faith, and that's justification. The word righteousness, the word declaration, all cousins in the Greek. He, that is Jesus, who was delivered over because of our transgressions and was raised from the dead because of our being made right with God. Listen, I, I love, and i got to be careful how I phrase this because I don't want you to misunderstand. I think in the last 15 years, it, it seems like the, the church has almost rediscovered the New Testament. You know, so much songs about the gospel and the cross. I love singing about the cross. I love singing about the power of the cross. But understand this. Now, listen to me fully. The cross and the death of Christ is insufficient as a saving object without the resurrection. Said another way, Christmas without the cross and resurrection is just a sentimental story. And Easter without Christmas and who Christ is is just a sad story of a man who died unless it's all made sense of by the fact that he rose from the dead. Let's ask some quick questions of verse 25. Who delivered Jesus? He's talking about Jesus. Who was delivered up, handed over literally, 
Jesus was handed over from Judas to Caiaphas. So we could say it was Judas, and that would be partially correct. We could say it was Caiaphas because Caiaphas then handed him over to Pilate, and that would be partly right. We could say it was Pilate because Pilate then handed him over to the executioners, and that was partially right. Or we could say it was the Jews who did it in general, and that would be partially right. Or we could say it was the Gentiles, the Romans, who did it, and we would be partially right. But Isaiah 53 verse 12 is clear that God himself is the one who is involved in handing over, delivering up the Son of God for crucifixion. And that text says it pleased God to crush him. Why was he handed over? Why did this happen? The text says for our sins. The God-man, the perfect one, Jesus Christ was delivered, handed over on behalf of sinners. Isaiah 53 again, verse 10, the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting an end to grief, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offer, he would render himself, not offer, but he himself would be a guilt offering. He will see his offspring. He will prolong his days. The good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. By his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, that's Jesus Christ, will will justify many and he will bear their iniquities. We sang it. He became sin. He did not commit sin. He bore and carried the sin of those who would believe. Therefore, God says, I will allot him a portion with the great. He would divide the booty with the strong because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors. And here it is. Yet he himself took away, bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. He was killed. This Friday is, it bothers me every time I hear this. And it's not a, it's a sentimental thing. It's not a biblical thing. But when we call the shopping day after Thanksgiving Black Friday. No, the history of the church says there was only one Black Friday. And it was the day that this happened. When he bore our sin. But it says in the, back to Romans 4, that he was raised. Now we're back to the resurrection. He was raised because of our justification, declaration of righteousness, being declared not guilty, all the same word. He was raised for our justification, our salvation. Note that Paul talks of Jesus' resurrection as a fact. It was for our justification. This has been the subject of the last two chapters in Romans, but note that Christ's death and resurrection are linked for a total and proper understanding of what a person must believe in that great doctrine of sola fide, faith alone. By the way, this verse was likely an early statement from memory, a kind of mini-catechism to remember the meaning of the cross. Let me say it as clear as I can possibly write it down. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the central fact 
of the Christian faith. Say, what about his death? His death is not meaningful without his resurrection. Paul will say that in a moment. Turn back to Acts for a moment. I want to give you a very quick tour just to see this. Our first forefathers as believers were mainly put on the spot, mainly uh, ridiculed because of their belief in Jesus' resurrection. Peter's first sermon in Peter, in, in, excuse me, in Acts chapter two. Remember in verse twenty-two, men of Israel, listen to these words: Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourselves know. This man, I love all this the theology that's in this verse. This man. Delivered, that's the same word in Romans, handed over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross. Who is responsible for Christ's death? Them or God? Yes. By the hands of godless men and put him to death. Verse 24, but, but God, but God raised him up Again, putting an end to the agony of death since. I love this. It was impossible for him to be held in its power. Acts chapter 17. Paul is standing with pagans up on Athens, Areopagus, the main hill where the temple was. Temple to dozens of gods. In Acts chapter 17, look at verse, let's pick it up in verse uh, 18. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers were conversing with Paul, and some were saying, what does this idle babbler wish to say? Others, see, uh, others said, he seems to be preaching a, uh, or proclaiming strange deities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. That's a strange deity. No religious construct has the idea of a, a, a man raised from the dead. And they took and brought him to the Areopagus and saying, may we know this new teaching, which you're proclaiming? Tell us about this. For you are bringing some strange things to our ears. What was the strangest thing they'd heard? That Jesus rose from the dead. So we want to know about these things and what they mean. Now, all the Athenians and strangers visiting there used to spend their time in nothing other than telling or hearing something new. So Paul stood in the midst of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I observe that you are very religious in all respects. For while I was passing through and examining the objects of your worship, Paul's walking around the temple. I also found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. They had uh, altars to every deity, and just in case they forgot one, they said to, to the one we don't know. Therefore, what you worship in ignorance, you know what? I, this I proclaim to you. There is one you don't know about, and I'm going to tell you about him. The God who made the world, this is the creatorhood of God, all things in it, since he is Lord in heaven, of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation, Mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their inhabitation, that they would seek God, if perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though 
He is not far from each one of us. Just by faith, you can reach out and grab him. For in him, we live and move and exist, as even some of your own poets have said, for we are his children. Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone or an image formed in the art and thought of man. It's not an idol. Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent because he's fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by doing what? Raising him from the dead. The proof of Jesus' identity is his resurrection. Verse 32. Now when they began to hear, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer. But others said, hang on a second. We will hear you again concerning what? This. The provocative gospel witness was Christ's resurrection from the dead. Chapter 23. Paul's arrested. Excuse me, he's, he's arrested and taken to Jerusalem to stand trial. In chapter 23, he gives his defense before the Jews. And verse, verse 6, he just simply says this. Perceiving that one of the group of the Sadducees and the other Pharisees began crying out in the council. Brethren, I'm a Pharisee, a son of a Pharisee. I am on trial for the hope and resurrection of the dead. It gets more specific in chapter 24. They hand him off to Felix. Uh, he's talking about why he's put on trial. Look at verse uh, 21. Well, verse 20. Let them tell me why they, uh, where I misled them. Found when I stood before the council, what have I said wrong other than for this one statement which I shouted out while standing among them for the resurrection of the dead, I am on trial before you today. I like the fact that he shouted it out. This was not something he was ashamed of. But it even gets more specific over before Festus in chapter 25, verse 18. When the accuser stood up, now he's before the Gentiles, bringing charges against him. Now the Jews are bringing these charges before the tribunal of such crimes as I was expecting. But they simply had some points of disagreement with him about their own religion. And this was um, Festus's assessment about a dead man, a dead man, Jesus, whom Paul asserted to be what? Alive. One more, before Agrippa, next chapter. He hands him over to Agrippa, chapter 26, verse 8. He says, why is it considered incredible among you people if God raises the dead? Why is that a big problem to you? In verse 22, so having obtained help from God, I stand to this day testifying to both small and great, stating nothing but what the prophets and Moses said was going to take place. That the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. 
These are like four or five passages. I want to challenge you, read the book of Acts and look for the resurrection. It's everywhere. In fact, what the people were most provoked about in the gospel message was not Christ's cross, as important as that is and as, uh, as much as we need to explain it, but the fact that he rose from the dead. Because once you find out why, that this man rose from the dead, you want to know what were the circumstances of his death. You back into the cross from the resurrection. Aaron read it this morning. 1 Corinthians 15, 12 to 19 says this, if we don't, if Christ was not raised from the dead, then this, our faith is in vain. It doesn't matter. Here's the question. This is what we have to believe to be saved. If anyone ever asks you, as I was asked by a liberal man on a plane one time, I was explaining this, and I, and I said, do you believe in the resurrection? No, that was a mythical thing. That was for our, our encouragement. I said, well, then what does it take to be saved? He gave me a little bit of a spiel of what he believed. And he asked me specifically, he says, so you believe that, that you have to believe that a man rose from the dead to be saved? Yes, that is the substance of what you have to believe. So here's the question. Would our lives and our reputations be put on trial or evaluated because of our pronounced belief that Jesus Christ from Nazareth rose from the grave? Is that your signature theologically? Is that the accent of your gospel message? It was Paul's. When he comes to the point of saying, look, here's the pattern. Abraham believed God, God said, I'll give you righteousness. We believe God too, and he will give us righteousness. Believe what? The resurrection. The gospel has three components. Facts to believe. Theology to believe about those facts. And a response to those theological facts. What are the facts? Well, if you read very carefully, Paul said, I want to tell you the facts and the meaning and the sum and the substance of the gospel. In 1 Corinthians 15, I make known to you, brethren, the gospel which I preached, which you also received, by which you're saved. Verse 3, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures. That's facts and theology. And that he was buried. There's a fact. How dead was he? Buried dead. That's how dead he was. And that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. And he appears to Cephas in 500. Do you believe the facts of Jesus' life and resurrection? Do you believe the meaning that he died for our sins and he gives us by nature of imputation his righteousness and we stand before him declared not guilty because of his doing, not our goodness? And then what's the response? Repentance. If Jesus rose from the dead, that is a game changer. That changes everything. Charles Spurgeon once said to a student, do you expect converts 
every time you preach? The student replied, of course not. Spurgeon then said, that is why you have none. We've met today and we've talked about the gospel, the good news that God in Christ offers righteousness and salvation in heaven and he has taken our sin on himself and died for our sin in our place as our substitute and proved it all by rising from the dead. Do you believe? Will you? Will you believe? It's a cold day in Kansas City. My car said 11 degrees when I got in it this morning, and I believed it. And wind chill matters. It was colder than that. It's just another day in Kansas City unless this is the day that you exercise faith, belief, and trust that Jesus Christ will forgive you of all your sins by his death and give you the righteousness you need to go to heaven. If you're familiar with that story, you've not embraced it and gone to that last part of repentance, what a good day, what a great day. Put down hypocrisy, lay down your pride, give your run to the cross, give your life to Christ. Don't don't mess around with this. We're not promised another day or breath. If that sounds like I'm trying to frighten you, I am. Could be that you're visiting with us or that you're not familiar with this. Don't leave without us talking to you about it. We're not going to coerce you. We're not going to put your arm behind your back. We're not going to manipulate you, but we would love to talk to you about what it means to have your soul declared righteous and not guilty before God Almighty, which is our greatest need. After I pray, there be some folks over here at our prayer room, and we would love to talk to you, pray with you, counsel you, anything we can do to serve you. Don't leave without things right between you and God the Father, the judge. Please, please, lunch is not that important. Father, we have taken such a wonder-filled trip through Romans 4 and to end with this practical application on us. In a week of giving thanks, we say thank you for this. Jesus, thank you. Father, thank you for crushing the sun for us. Holy Spirit, thank you for opening our eyes to understand this truth. Please grant faith. Please, it's supernatural. It's it's divine. It has to happen because of your power. Lord, please grant faith to those struggling with this. Please forgive sinners because they believe in who you are, what you've done, and that you proved it by rising from the dead. And use each of us in conversations that we can have with people today, with people this week, to tell them that we know a man. We know a man who rose from the grave who offers us the same hope after our deaths. Lord, thank you for this good news. Because of Jesus, we pray. Amen. You've been listening to a presentation of Mission Road Bible Church in Prairie Village, Kansas. For more information, visit missionroadbiblechurch.com.